0: Despite years of demonization, despite a global campaign to discredit the democratic mandate delivered by Venezuelans, despite years of increasingly severe sanctions, Venezuela never submitted to U.S. imperialism. And on Saturday, March 5th, 2022, it was Washington that was forced to admit the failure of its years-long strategy of pretending some obscure opposition figure with no real power was president. The real elected president is, and has always been, Nicolás Maduro. It was Maduro who received the high-level delegation in Caracas, and it was the Maduro government that the U.S. would have to negotiate with as they scrambled to find solutions to a potential energy crisis. Although the meeting ultimately failed to produce an agreement, the episode was an extraordinary show of dignity for the people of Venezuela. Welcome to the Venezuela Analysis Podcast. I'm your host Jose Luis Granado Seja. The Venezuela Analysis Podcast brings you independent, on-the-ground English-language coverage of Venezuela and the Bolivarian process. You'll hear news and in-depth analysis about the country, as well as coverage of leftists and grassroots forces. On today's program, we're going to take a look at the fallout of the visit by a high-level White House delegation to Venezuela, spurred on by the Russia-Ukraine conflict, as well as implications of this political moment for Venezuela and the region. News of the U.S. delegation to Venezuela came as a surprise to many. The U.S. team was led by White House Latin America advisor Juan González. Media reports indicated that the U.S. was seeking new presidential elections, a larger participation of foreign private capital in Venezuela's oil industry, and a public condemnation of Russia's incursion into Ukraine the Biden administration representatives reportedly offered Venezuela a temporary return to the SWIFT financial transaction system. Suffice it to say, that was not a feasible proposal. For their part, Venezuelan President Nicolás Maduro and Vice President Delcy Rodriguez instead demanded broader sanctions relief and the return of foreign assets, such as oil subsidiary Citgo. With midterm elections looming and rising energy costs inside the U.S. as a result of the Russia-Ukraine conflict, the Biden administration is in a tight spot, Meanwhile, the Maduro government in Venezuela, which counts on the world's largest oil reserves, is now in a more favorable bargaining position. Though no deal was reached, Washington and Caracas nonetheless seemed to leave the door open to dialogue. Maduro also pledged to restart the dialogue process with the hardline opposition, San Juan Guaidó, but then came the backlash. The direct talks with Maduro were met with vehement condemnation from both Republican politicians such as Senator Marco Rubio and even fellow Democrats, such as Flora's Debbie Wasserman Schultz, a longtime supporter of the Venezuelan opposition. In light of the criticism from hardline sympathizers of the Venezuelan opposition, the Biden administration said it had suspended its direct talks with the Venezuelan government, but that a deal to lift some sanctions in exchange for restarting oil sales to the U.S. was still on the table. One thing is for sure. The direct talks between Washington and Caracas have jeopardized the U.S.'s strategy in Venezuela and its support for Juan Guaido. Senator Marco Rubio recently admitted that a deal with Maduro would mean that the opposition would be finished.
1: Maduro
0: To talk about these recent developments and what a rapidly changing global scenario could mean for Latin America, we will speak with geopolitical expert and Venezuela analysis newest columnist, Sergio Rodríguez Gelfinstein. He's a journalist and professor with a doctorate in political science from Venezuela's Universidad de los Andes. Rodríguez Galvinstein also served as former director of international relations for the Venezuelan presidency and is the former Venezuelan ambassador to Nicaragua. But first, a conversation between myself and Ricardo Bas, editor at Venezuela Analysis, where we'll talk about the high-level meeting, its portrayal in the media, and what comes next. Hi, Ricardo. It's so good to have you here with us again, talking about the political situation in Venezuela. And in this episode, we're talking about the situation of Venezuela in the global context. So, as we discussed previously, a high-level delegation to Venezuela visited the country. And after this delegation, it seemed like perhaps the two countries were on the verge of a deal. I know personally, I was convinced that at the very least, we were going to see some kind of authorization for Chevron to expand his operations. Yet, since the meeting, we've heard very little. And we also know that the U.S. made some very heavy and ultimately unworkable demands. But we also saw some major backlash inside the United States. So, what happened? Was it imperial hubris with the US asking too much and offering too little? Or was it domestic considerations that derailed the possibility of a deal?
2: Hi, Jose Luis. As always, a pleasure to be here. I think this was a perfect example of, you know, we say there's never a dull moment in, in Venezuelan politics. So, we had all of a sudden this announcement that the delegation was on its way to Caracas and then it seemed like a, a game changer, but here we are one, one month later and not really much has changed. So basically, I think there was a case of confirmation bias from everyone who was analyzing it. So perhaps the, the hardliners were saying that uh, the OS was here to tell Maduro that the game was over. That doesn't seem very plausible. Some here who are... Perhaps too critical of the government from the left saw it as a kind of final capitulation from Maduro to the U.S., which also doesn't seem like it, like that's the case. And perhaps the most hard, the most uh, vocal government supporters saw this as the you know a victory for the government in, in forcing the, the United States to to come back to to the table. And in that, in some sense, that's true, right? I mean, the fact that the, we know that there were. Back channels open all this time, but the fact that the a White House delegation went to Miraflores to talk to Maduro—that—that that is, you know, whether they want to admit it or not—is a, a de facto recognition that Maduro is, in fact, running the country. Something that it seems absurd to even be discussing right now, but I'm, I'm sure we'll get to it in a bit more. So it's still a mystery why the Biden administration exposed itself like this, because as you were saying uh, just now. There was a huge backlash from both Republicans and Democrats, the most hawkish figures in, in foreign policy we could say, that kind of forced the the administration in, in, into this scramble mode where they were saying they weren't they weren't offering concessions to Maduro sanctions sanctions removal were not on the table. They were still hoping for uh, Maduro to offer significant uh, you know quote unquote steps towards. Democracy before offering anything on their behalf. There were the there was the release of two imprisoned U.S. citizens. I mean, the Venezuelan government over the years has offered several of these goodwill gestures, and then basically everything boiled down to Chevron. That's where all all eyes are right right now because Chevron has a license to operate in Venezuela. I mean, every other or almost every other foreign company has been blocked from dealing with Venezuela by the U.S. Treasury Department, and, sanction, uh, and Chevron has a, a sanctions exemption that basically allows it to just continue operating at the bare minimum. So with the Ukraine conflict and you know fuel prices going th- uh, through the sky, there was an urgency from the administration to, to find alternative source, and that, that was the main motivation for the trip to Caracas. And the way to do that without any significant sanctions relief is by expanding Chevron's license. That is, instead of just allowing it to maintain these bare bones of an operation, allow it to uh, to expand its operations, to get paid in, in oil and so on, and, and really allow for a uh, Venezuelan crew to, be, to go back to to restart its shipments to, to U.S. refineries. So that's more or less where we're at. And there are many contradictory... Signs right now. I mean, everyone has an opinion. Everyone has a source. Some of them say that there will be an expansion. Some of them say they won't, and that, that's more or less the, where we are right now. So we, we go back to the mystery of why the the Biden administration took this step publicly. My my speculation is that the, uh, there was a, a, sh- a signal that they really wanted to shift policy, and it was a demand from the Maduro government that they go pub- public so that they assume the political cost. And not just continue with this game in the shadows where, where they can, uh, you know, push the the hardline policy. And even though it seems that they're not, the, the US officials are not totally convinced about it. So uh, I think there's still a lot to explain, but that's more or less my, my reading into it.
0: Yeah, and I think also the United States was interested in seeing if it could drive a wedge between Venezuela and Russia, given the geopolitical situation right now. You know, as we know... Venezuela and Russia do have a long and important relationship. And I do think that there is a considerable fear amongst U.S. policymakers that Russia's foothold, quote unquote, in Venezuela could present a national security risk for the United States. We also know that the Media landscape plays a really important part in terms of U.S. policy towards Venezuela. And we previously talked about U.S. media outlets and their mental gymnastics in order to maintain this idea that the opposition leader, Juan Maido, actually wields any kind of authority in the country. You and I know, readers of our website know, that that's not actually the case. Yet, as we saw in this delegation, they didn't fly down to Caracas to meet with Maido. In fact, it turns out he probably heard about this meeting the day of, maybe the day before. They met with Maduro in the presidential palace. Yet, once again, we saw efforts by U.S. media outlets to portray him as relevant. Can you talk to us a little bit about some of the more egregious examples of this narrative being constructed in U.S. media? And why do you think outlets insist on amplifying why though?
2: I think the way I would would frame it is that for a long time, uh, for U.S. corporate outlets and Western corporate outlets in general supporting the Venezuelan opposition and uncritically endorsing US foreign policy was basically one and the same. It was the same exercise. And perhaps that you know lack of, of the lack of a need for any critical ability perhaps explains why outlets send these very mediocre, and that's putting it mildly, these mediocre journalists to be their correspondents in Venezuela, right? Like uh, Brian Ellsworth from Reuters or Anatoly Kurmaina from from the New York Times and the Guardian, the Guardian I said these legendary figures like Rory Carroll and, and Tom Phillips, because basically there was no journalism to be done. It was just echoing what the opposition said or echoing what the State Department was saying, which was basically the same. And then all of a sudden there, there was a, I wouldn't say a split, but there was a need to find some balance between the, the US delegation coming to meet with Maduro. And and shunning Guaido altogether, I mean, I picture a very funny scene in my head where the plane is in there, and the delegation has this feeling, oh, it's like, it looks like we're forgetting something. And they forgot that they actually recognized someone else as quote unquote interim president in Venezuela. And the same thing happened with the, the New York Times report that broke the news that this delegation was on the way. It's only midway through that they feel kind of obliged to, to remind their readers that there was this other figure who you know, does nothing, does Zoom calls, has these small gatherings that look like picnics every once in a while, that for some absurd reason, that's <laughs> still hard to explain. He's recognized as the the legitimate president in Venezuela. And in fact, when we were talking about backlash just now, the, the angle that uh, the people who opposed this uh, Biden move chose was precisely that you know, the administration, the administration recognizes Guaido, has that change? And the administration has this uh, recurring answer that, you know, the stance has not changed. And, and so it was a, a difficult exercise for the media to, act, to try and justify on one hand, the, the Biden rapprochement, because, I mean, it's a reflex to just endorse everything it does. And at the same time, try to safeguard Guaido's legitimacy. Right now, it's a bit easier because as, you, as we were discussing before, the this this progress at least on the surface has cooled down, so it's a bit back to business as usual. But before, I mean, in the past two or three weeks, it was really interesting. I mean, one egregious case was was Reuters, who said something that I think is a blatant lie that the, this U.S. delegation went to meet with Guaido after meeting with Maduro. I mean, Guaido will broadcast if he has a zoom call with some foreign minister from slovenia so i don't think he would have met with the delegation from the white house and not said anything about it so that was really a a, a blatant a blatant attempt to to rewrite history and other cases we saw for example bloomberg say that you know the, the us is not going to offer anything it's waiting for significant concessions from the government before even allowing the Venezuelan officials to contact Chevron executives, which also seems very far-fetched that the the Maduro government would would go through all these lengths just for the privilege of talking to oil executives. So that's more or less the the scenario. I mean, everybody else had these pieces like the Associated Press of Guaido feeling uh, shunned and, and embarrassed and angry or, you know but the fact is that it doesn't really matter but the way they try to frame it is that it was the the opposition the hardline opposition's reaction that forced the the hawks in in Washington and in Florida to go at the the administration when in fact in fact it's the opposite right i mean it's these people who actually need uh, someone who is as useless as as Guido to maintain this this very hardline policy because if we think about it, we are now over three years into this experiment, and there is no exit plan, right? I mean, we had Guaido proclaim himself, and I think the, the people in at the time the Trump administration thought that either the government would fold or the the military would stage a coup, and then they would they would see what would come after. But they, there is no no way to get no easy way to get rid of Guaido, and that's why the Biden administration is still stuck with him.
0: We've seen in actually some coverage where it seems like the Biden White House is reportedly seeking a way to kind of get out of this this bind that it finds itself when it's considering a change in terms of its approach towards Venezuela. And one of the things that came out of this direct meeting between the White House and Caracas was this commitment by the Venezuelan government to resume talks in Mexico City with the opposition factions. Although we should be clear that the government has also ruled out talking with Guaido. So with Guaido's increasingly weakened position and even Marco Rubio openly admitting that a direct deal between Washington and Caracas would mean that the opposition was finished, what does this mean for the negotiations between the government and the opposition?
2: Yeah, I mean, Rubio should have said that part out loud. Uh, I think one thing just to clarify when we're talking about whether it's corporate journalists or US officials considering a change of tactic when it comes to Venezuela it's not born out of any, any principle or any uh, understanding that sanctions have had devastating consequences for the civilian population. It's all within the spectrum of American exceptionalism and, and what's the most effective way to effect regime change. Going back to what you were saying, that was perhaps the most visible, at least in PR terms, the most visible consequence of this meeting with the with the U.S. delegation, the, the restart of dialogue with the, with the opposition. However. If I had to sum it up, I think the reason why there's perhaps this change in in the in the international scenario and, and the relationship between Venezuela and the United States, I think that for the first time, leverage has swung in favor of of the Maduro government. They're not as desperate as they used to be because oil production is is going up, even if very slowly. There's a modest but also encouraging economic recovery. So. Uh, I think in terms of timescales, Maduro is in less of a rush than the U.S., or at least not in as much of a rush as he was before, because the the motivation for the Biden administration was they have midterm elections on the horizon, and if fuel prices are very high, that's going to be a problem. Whereas for Maduro, he only has elections to look forward in 2024, and that can even be late 2024. So, of course, he has an interest in sanctions relief that will allow uh, far, a faster economic recovery that would allow the improvement of living conditions and, in turn, boost his—assuming uh, that he's the candidate, of course—that's still that's still far from decided—boost Chavismo's chances of of winning of winning re-election. Re- so, in that sense, we've we've had a month since this meeting with the with the U.S. officials, and other than a few public uh, statements, we have seen no real. Ad- Progress towards restarting negotiations. In fact, we have seen the opposite. We've seen this this episode that you were mentioning, where there was some evidence of Guaido's far right party, voluntad Popular, being linked to a to a drug a drug lord that was detained in Colombia. And so the Venezuelan government seized upon that to say that we're not going to talk to drug dealers. They had also said before that they're looking to to have a wider, more inclusive process. So all of that, to me, says that. Guaido's influence is diminished and the government, at least for now, has time on its side. So it's in no rush to get back into, into negotiations because it knows that the longer this goes, the, the less importance Guaido is going to have. And with a more fragmented opposition, its bargaining position is also stronger. So that's more or less where I think things stand right now. I, I would expect talks to resume at some point but it doesn't look like it's imminent.
0: Yeah, not to mention the world is changing very rapidly. In our next segment, we're going to speak with a political analyst who's going to talk to us about how this new scenario, it could actually be favorable. A multipolar world, which is something that has always been on the table in terms of Venezuela's political process, is now something that could offer real alternatives and perhaps even render moot the question of Venezuela's relationship with Washington, at least in the long term. Well, Ricardo, that's all I have for you today. Thanks so much for being with us, as always. Really valuable contributions to our understanding of the situation in Venezuela. My pleasure. In our interview, Sergio Rodriguez-Galfinstein speaks to us about the struggle against imperialism in a context of declining U.S. hegemony, as well as the prospects for regional integration in Latin America in an era that some have termed the New Cold War. Thank you for joining us. The U.S. meeting with Maduro was due to the fact that in Venezuela there is a brave people who never submitted to the efforts of imperialism to oust their government. But leaks from the meeting indicate that we are still quite far from a normalization of the bilateral relationship. What can the Venezuelan government do to respond to these representatives of imperialism who seem to be willing to cede very little or even nothing at all?
3: Well, this is part of a more global logic. It's much more than the bilateral relationship between Venezuela and the United States. At this moment, from the pandemic onwards, especially since the war in Ukraine, everything that's happening around the world is much more interconnected. It would seem like a new world is rising. It looks like all moves that are being taken against Russia, Russia had seen them coming. They had eight years to prepare themselves for this conflict and for the political, economic, media repercussions. They seem to have an answer for everything. And in Russia, they don't seem scared, worried, or depressed about the actions taken against them. This just preparations had gone on for many years to understand that the actions to be undertaken in Ukraine in defense of the Russian minority over there would have repercussions that went beyond Russia and Ukraine all the way to Europe and even global repercussions in the sense of disconnecting themselves. Not just from the SWIFT system, but the World Trade Organization too. Russia has just been expelled from the UN Human Rights Council, which could lead to Russia leaving the United Nations. So we begin to have a world with two international systems that run in parallel. So the question is where the situation will end up. I realize that what I'm saying might sound crazy or far-fetched, but look at where the world stood two years ago and where it is now. We need to insert this U.S.-Venezuela negotiations in that context, because if that scenario came to pass, then understand that right now, for obvious reasons, these are in Venezuela's interests. How important would ties with the U.S. be for Venezuela? What importance could it have? If a parallel world is set up where Venezuela gets to establish its economic ties and political ties, this relationship with the U.S. will be of little importance. Evidently, the United States had a knee jerk reaction, an immediate action to respond to all this debacle, which is swinging around and backfiring, not just against the U.S., but also against Europe, especially against Europe, which is feeling the fallout from the sanctions. As such, at the level of sanctions and the escalation of sanctions, it's becoming practically impossible for the world to continue living in current conditions. Because there is a world on the surface and a world below the surface. And this world below the surface is not a smaller one. If we recall, for example, the number of countries, and this has been said many times, we're talking about 89% of the global population in the UN General Assembly voting to reject Russian today. Today in the Human Rights Council, The number of votes from countries abstaining or condemning Russia, and in the opposite direction, the number of countries supporting Russia, is growing. Venezuela has a strategic alliance with Russia and needs to take note of what's going on. The repercussions in global terms, in strategic terms, to decide how to act in the relations that might be established in negotiations with the United States.
0: Several figures, among them the foreign minister to the presidency in Bolivia, Juan Ramón Quintana, and President Andrés Manuel López Obrador in Mexico, have commented that the U.S. appears to be poised to impose a new Cold War, where any government that does not submit to Washington will be labeled as an enemy of the U.S. Do you share this view that we are on the cusp of a new Cold War?
3: A cold or hot war needs at least two actors. I don't know if this Cold War could be between the United States and China or the United States and Russia. If it's China... China has said it has no interest in engaging in Cold War, that it will carry on with its project. So it will be a United States war against China in which China will not act against the U.S. Because if we talk about the first Cold War, there was effectively the prospect of the U.S. destroying the Soviet Union, which ended up happening, and of the Soviet Union destroying the U.S. But in this case, no. Up until now, China has not talked about destroying the United States or making it disappear. Quite the contrary. Chinese discourse is about overcoming problems, coming together, cooperating in issues where there are shared positions, etc. In the case of Russia, it's also not in Russia's interest to establish a Cold War. We're not so cold in this case because we have before us a clear confrontation in which NATO is using Ukraine to wage a hot war against Russia. The US and NATO want Ukrainians sacrificing themselves for the West and they're achieving it so far. But there is no will or interest of any kind from Russia. I haven't heard any of its leaders establish a kind of Cold War where they would position themselves as adversaries to the U.S., even less proposed destroying the U.S., like in the Cold War. So what might emerge are two international system structures, each marching on its own. Needless to say, the 11% of white people in the global north will be interested in imposing, by force, their conditions and points of view on the rest of the world. But they need economic resources to do so. And that's not what we're witnessing around the world. What we are witnessing in the world is not U.S. growth in economic terms or in terms of cooperation with the U.S., quite the opposite. We're talking about the United States in crisis, an economic crisis that began as something circumstantial, but is now becoming a structural crisis. We're talking about the highest inflation in 40 years. We also have Germany with the highest inflation in 90 years. It's an economic scenario that might soon become even more critical due to the dependence on food and energy imports from Russia. Therefore, we're facing a weird scenario because, as far as I know, it hadn't been studied. It hadn't been taken into account by analysts, by international relations scholars. It's a scenario where the world marches in two blocks. They march in parallel. One block has Europe, the U.S., Australia, Canada, Japan. The other has the rest of the world. It should be said that it's the second block that holds the largest amount of natural resources. And as such, it's an open
0: challenge for Europe and the United States to address their economic struggles. And what implications does this new scenario have for Latin America?
3: We are a producing country. We're major producers of energy, major producers of strategic minerals, major producers of food. Therefore, if in Latin America we move forward towards industrialization processes and towards creating an internal market that can place us as a single Latin American block that can see eye to eye with China and with Russia so we can escape the morass we find ourselves in. This hasn't been possible because oligarchies, our oligarchies, have been extremely backward. And in that sense, Latin American integration is the most lagging in the world. We're incapable of getting on the same page But as long as we continue moving forward, keep in mind, this year, we might end up with a progressive government in Colombia, and especially with a progressive government in Brazil. It will be the first time that the two Latin American giants, Mexico and Brazil, are in the same trench. This has never happened in 200 years of independent history. Therefore, with Brazil and Mexico in the same trench, dragging all of Latin America's economic potential to establish a new level of ties with China, with Asia in general with Russia, with Africa, with West Asian and Middle Eastern countries. We don't need to position ourselves as enemies to Europe, not even to the US. So we could be a global power block. But for that to happen, we first need to continue securing governments in Latin America, progressive governments that will prioritize integration. And second, continue moving forward in regional integration, which is the only way for Latin America to solve its issues and become a relevant international actor in the future.
0: Imperialism is conscious of the threat posed by regional integration. That is why we saw the effort to destroy UNASUR, for example. But with a new wave of leftist and progressive governments, there is a renewed opportunity to push for regional integration. What's missing to truly boost regional integration in this moment?
3: We need to create a more common sentiment and position than what we saw in the first 15 years of the century. But that depends on the people, and the people keep electing right-wing governments. If the people continue to be lured by the media and elect their enemies as president, then it becomes much harder. But I can assure you, it's not harder than it was to triumph in the struggle for independence, which was achieved successfully against one of the world's most powerful armies in the early 19th century. So we hear that the struggle is hard. The same thing was said at the time. We were talking about facing the army that had played a role in the defeat of Napoleon Bonaparte. In Venezuela, in the year 1815, an army landed with 15,000 men, led by the most brilliant general the Spanish ever had in the independence war, and we defeated them Not only did we defeat them in Venezuela, but we were able to take our army to the south. We defeated them in Ecuador. We defeated them in Peru. We defeated them in Bolivia. In other words, those who think of doing political transformations and expect an easy ride should look elsewhere. Find a way to never confront powerful enemies. And those powerful enemies will take it easy on you. Don't go for the tough struggle. Find something else. But if you want to be a revolutionary, if you want to transform society, if you believe, like the World Social Forum motto says, if you believe that another world is possible, you need to fight and face up difficulties head on, no matter how hard they are. If you expect to do something without any difficulties, then it's better to look elsewhere. You won't find it here. Our history is with a capital H. It's supposed to overcome obstacles. When you study study the life of Bolivar and you analyze what he did, you realize that this man and all the independence heroes had to overcome difficulties every day, all their lives. They never had it easy, just like now. Not only was there an external enemy, there was also an internal one. A struggle against these oligarchies that were pushing for independence, but to take over the state in order to have it serve their own interests. In that sense, we're not facing something new. If you read Bolivar's letter from Jamaica 200 years ago, he was forecasting what we're going through. Therefore, we cannot be discouraged by the difficulties. We need to build from the positives, from the points in common. We must join our efforts and persevere to find these common points. No one would have guessed three or four years ago that President López Obrador would embark on such huge efforts like he did while Mexico held the pro tempore presidency of SILAC so that SILAC could rise again from its ashes to assume its protagonism in the regional integration scenario. Well, we also have tough situation now because at the helm in Argentina is a cowardly, indecisive, faint-hearted president. Not even his people believe in him. But in any case, such is the path and struggle of the peoples. It's not always straightforward. It's dialectical with setbacks and progress, and we have to believe because we trust the people that the advances will always outnumber the setbacks and we will continue moving forward. I'm an unrelenting optimist in the sense that I don't see a setback in strategic terms. There might be setbacks in tactical terms, but in strategic terms, we're moving forward and that's irreversible.
0: That's our program for today. Thank you for joining us. Remember, our on-the-ground work is 100% funded by readers. Please consider making a one-time donation or becoming a subscriber by visiting our website, venezuelanalysis.com. You can also support us on Patreon. Be sure to visit us on our website for regular news and analysis on all things Venezuela. We're also everywhere on social media, from Telegram to Instagram and, of course, Twitter. If you enjoyed this program, please share it with your friends and leave us a review if you can. It really helps us out. We'll end today's episode with 11 de Abril 2002, Golpe de Estado, from Yovisando Cantos, written about the U.S.-backed coup 20 years ago that briefly ousted Hugo Chavez before the brave efforts of the Venezuelan people defeated the coup and led to the radicalization of the Bolivarian Revolution.
1: Ustedes, Venezolanas, (laughs) ustedes, Venezolanos (laughs) que me (laughs) adversan, pues (laughs) adversen. Yo no puedo, trataré de hacerlos cambiar, ojalá. Pero ustedes no pueden adversar esta constitución. Pido perdón al que me escuchas si y solloza mi canción. Si al recordar parte el alma y la razón, once de abril de 2002. Con devoción le dedicamos esta ofrenda del amor. A los caídos y a las víctimas que son ejemplo de revolución. Civil. Una marcha convocado que termina en Chihuahua. Se vienen por la autopista, engañados, disociados. Manipulan los golpistas y la marchan desviado. Al grito de Amina Flores am- montan el golpe de Estado como carne de cañón. Usan a sus partidarios un enfrentamiento con el pueblo que está preso, en defensa del palacio, con la vía hacia si el Precio, mientras el de Cristal, arrastrados generales, contaban de varios muertos, que la culpa era de Chávez, la policía golpista en fila el puente y agudo. Los patriotas les hacen frente, los fascistas arremeten. Y no pasarán, no volverán, rugen los bolivarianos En Fuente y Aguro, todos somos uno, la batalla ha comenzado Se entona la canción patria, arrecia la plomazón La ballena, la vanguardia. dispara el francotirador, pecho a tierra Paran, asesinos con certeza, mientras tanto en el puente, defensores de Chaguno, hacen frente a los azules con valor sin disimulo. y la escena manipulan y repiten en televisión, señalando pastoreos que asesinan a la oposición y de calma al presidente en cadena nacional. La pantalla es dividida, el golpe es monumental, encabezan la traición, los que se decían leales, nunca fueron activados, las defensas ni los planes. Silencio en el ganado, 8, amenaza bombardeo, se entrega mi comandante, resistencia volveremos. De abril, pones golpitas, su pan de lasaña saña, y suenos poder, con la sonriente, aplausos de oligarcas. Allanan y asesinan, reprimen toda protesta. aquí no creemos dictadura, aquí queremos democracia. ¿Qué voy a hacer yo con mi voto? Yo voté por Chávez, yo quiero que Chávez termine su mandato, porque si no hay democracia, Y pueblo heroico revierte la patraña. Cobardes golpistas huyen en presencia del poder popular. Comandos rescatan a mi comandante en la isla de la mochila. Gloria al bravo pueblo. Aquí seguiremos. Con Chávez vencemos. El gobierno existente en Venezuela lo rige el señor presidente de la República, Hugo Rafael Chávez Frías.